So in looking tonight at Psalm 24, uh, I titled today's message is the Messiah as coming king. Okay. Uh, I know last week we had a uh, pause because we had a Christmas Eve program right with our church. Uh, so we didn't uh, look at the Psalms. But Psalm 24, like I mentioned, is the last is part of a trio of Psalm. Okay. Again, it's Psalms 22, 23, and 24. What is Psalms 22 and 23 is about? Is about who? We talked about points. Jesus, okay? Uh, yeah, the Messiah, okay? So today uh, I titled this sermon is The Messiah is Coming King, okay? The Messiah is Coming King. And I think I mentioned even the point that if you look carefully at Psalm 22, you can make a uh, case that this person seems like a human being, but at times it seems like he must be God. I mean, he's getting so much praise, right? He's being talked about for a long time, okay? Uh, this Psalms 23 is even more like, okay, this is God. And yet at the same time, we looked at the New Testament usage of it, if you guys remember, where this is um, Jesus Christ says this is Him. The way He does certain things, especially in Mark 6, He's the shepherd, right? He's at the green grass, He's providing. And yet at the same time, in Mark 15, we even made a point that when He's about to go to the cross, right? This is a psalm that comforted Him. Because what? Uh, did God prepare a table before Him? Before? The night before? Yeah. What is that? The Lord, the last... The Passover supper, right? Um, before his enemies, right? He's going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. All of that. So Jesus Christ read that and also was comforted and ministered to him and his humanity also as well. Okay? So if you guys look at this, I think this is about the uh, Messiah. Okay? Psalm 22. If you guys look uh, in uh, if the outline. Julie, you have the outline with it if you do. Uh, under the part where it says, you know, under the three points we're looking at, I want to put a thing that it is written by uh, David, but underneath that, do you guys see the part? It says, Psalm 24 is a part of a trio of Psalms on the Messiah beginning with Psalm 22, okay? And then the chart, I think, is interesting. Uh, when you look at Psalm 22, 23, 24, um, this is from my professor, Dr. Barrett. He broke it down about, if you look at Psalm 22, um, the person, Psalm 22, is maybe the best thing for his title is servant, right? He's a suffering servant. This is later on. Isaiah, I think he didn't get out of nowhere, Isaiah 53. He's going to, of course, he got divine revelation. But he's building upon Psalm 22 and adding more details about the what? Suffering servant, right? Okay. Um, Psalm 23, the title of the Messiah could be shepherd, okay? And Psalm 24 then is sovereign or what? King, okay? Um, but my professor alliterated in three S, okay? Servant, shepherd, what? Uh, sovereign, okay? Then the ministry in Psalm 22 is what? One of suffering, okay? Psalm 23 is one of providing, because the, sh uh, the shepherd, the good shepherd provide, including salvation. And Psalm 24 is about reigning, that is the Messiah as king, okay? Then, generally speaking, there's a time reference, okay? Generally speaking, although this is not like airtight, Psalm 22, uh, the Messiah's suffering is in what time period? Past, present, or future? Past, okay? Uh, the Messiah as shepherd, is that an ongoing reality even right now? Yes, present, okay? And the Messiah as full coming king, okay? Psalm 24, I don't think it's just the Messiah as king, but it's a coming king also as well. The future second coming is also future, okay? And the symbol of Psalm 22, you could say is what? The cross with his what? Suffering. Psalm 23 then is a symbol, is a crook in the sense of a what? Staff, Okay? And Psalm 24, you might even say, is a crown, because he is what? King, okay? So I'm bringing this up is to say that there is something in the way, that, canonically, in where the Psalms is situated. Um, I think if you guys have been following along for the last uh, three months, I hope you saw that each one of these Psalms, when you look at it, 
Sometimes it leaves us with questions, but then you see the next psalm will answer. Mm. And also there's a connection. Sometimes the first word of the psalm and the last word of the previous psalm, there's an interconnection, right? The ter term anointed and stuff like that. So uh, in terms of my own reading the psalms, the more I read the psalms, the more I go in-depth study, the more I actually see more and more what? Messianic mm. prophecy also as well, okay? I know we didn't go over this, uh, but I kind of even want to teach one of these days, maybe Psalm 8, maybe one of these days, another retreat, we go over more Messianic Psalms, because I actually, been in my own personal study of Psalm 8, now I kind of see like, whoa, if you look more careful, t attention to detail, Psalms 8 is Messianic, mm. Psalms 8, that's a passage where it says, you know, what is God, what are you, oh man, that God would, mm. you know, make and all of that. And consider him, okay? But the more I look at it in the flow of all things, I think there's a suggestion that's more than talking about man. But it's talking about the means that God uses to win over Satan also as well, okay? Or maybe it'll be a good Christmas message also as well, okay? Sure. So let's go on with that, okay? So in light of this, we're going to see three points from Psalm 24 today. Is We're going to see these three points is this, the Messiah reign over the world. This is verses 1 and 2. Again, the main point is to emphasize He is King, Okay? Uh, but let me make it clear, they're going to use the word God a lot in Psalm 24, more than Psalm 22, 23, okay? But nevertheless, I think there's an interchange. They're interchangeable, the term Messiah and God, in light of what I've been looking at the last two weeks before, right? Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. I think it fits with the flow, okay? Um, so we're going to see they're interchangeable, but these are three points. The Messiah shall reign, or the Messiah reign over the world in verses 1 through what? 2, okay? Second point is what? The Messiah is holy, okay? Okay, I actually think you see a compact version of the gospel in nutshell form in verses 3 to 6, okay? Verses 3 to 6, the Messiah is holy, okay? Rebecca, Abigail, Hannah, could you just say the Messiah is holy, okay? Verses 3, verses 3 to 6, okay? Okay. So the third point is the Messiah is glorious, okay? The Messiah is glorious. This is in verses 7 to 10, okay? Verses 7 to 10, okay? And as we go over this, verses 7 to 10, I, later on, I'll emphasize He's glorious and He's coming back to this world, okay? For His second coming. He's coming back as what? A king, okay? He's not coming here as a suffering servant. He's not merely coming back uh, as a uh, shepherd. But the next time He comes back, is going to be full on what? King of glory. Okay? So in light of this, let's look at point number one. The Messiah reigned over the world. Let's read verses one and two again. Nancy, would you... Actually, Rebecca, would you be able to read verses one? And then Nancy, read verses two. Yeah, so I think the, these two, first two verses makes it very clear. I think the main focus of these two verses is to make sure that we don't make God small. Okay, uh, Verses 1 and 2 makes it very clear that the God of the Bible is different than... Now remember, when this was written, this was written a thousand years before Christ was born. In all the surrounding countries around Israel, uh, during the time of King David, most of those countries did not believe in what? The God of the Bible let alone the idea of believing in only one God of the whole world, okay? They believe in what? Small little gods according to their country size. However big their country is, the Philistines, is where their God is in charge of. Contrary to this, if you see verses 1 to 2, the biblical, the true living God is not puny. 
Okay, because in verses 1, you see everything belongs to the Lord, Messiah, okay? You see everything. And in the Hebrew, it actually, uh, remember uh, how uh, I mentioned about English and Hebrew word order is different, the syntax? English sentences is usually what? What's the order? Subject, then what follows after that? Verb, and then object, right? Uh, Hebrew is often verb, subject, and object, okay? Looking at the first phrase, the earth is the Lord's, okay? Literally in Hebrew, it is the earth is for the Lord or to the Lord. That object to the Lord is actually moved forward. And it's moved forward for emphasis, okay? The emphasis is on God, okay? The emphasis is on who? God, God okay? God. Um, it is God is the emphasis. Back then, they didn't have little highlighters. They didn't have computers where you can make uh, font uh, bold or underline or italicized. The way you put for emphasis, what? Is you put it in forward, okay? So here you see the two lines in verse 1 shows everything belongs to God with two-paired statement, okay? The first pair is the Lord, earth is the Lord and all it contains, okay? That's line 1. It's two-paired statement in a sense. There's two um, fact or factoids that is in this first line, okay? Number 1 is the earth is the Lord's. That is the world is the Lord's, right? Who does it belong to? It's property of God. And then it says all that it contains in the earth, Okay? All that's within the planet Earth belongs to who? God also as well. When he says all that it contains, I think what David is trying to emphasize when he wrote this psalm is that God's creation or the cre- uh, creations uh, within the Earth itself belongs to God, okay? Uh, with that, okay? Um, so then when we look on with this, uh, in verses 2, uh, or second line, it then says what? Very similar is very similar to the second line, this, uh, to the first line. The first, whereas the first line says the earth, the second line uses what word? Synonymous word. World, okay? They're synonymous. And the world here is, says what? Uh, is also belonging to who? God. Okay, if it's repeating, that means it's for emphasis. That we need to really know that the Messiah reigns over what? The world, because that world belongs to Him. Do you see the second part? It goes then and says what? And all what? Those who dwell in it. Mm. That is now talking about God's creatures, including human beings. Mm. So it's not just creation belongs to God, like different items, created things. It's also creatures belong to God. In fact, the whole world itself, the physical world itself, belongs all of it to who? God, okay? Uh, now, why does it all belong to God? You might say, why does it all belong to God? Because for back then, 3,000 years ago, again, remember, David's time, when he was king, surrounding neighbors often believe in what? Many gods. But their gods were all small, G. In a sense, it's only for this local area, only for this area, for drinking, for food, for t- fertility, for rain, all that kind of thing, or death. But here, we see the reason why is given. The reason, the theological argument given is in verses 2. The reason why everything belongs to God is because what? It's because God is creator of everything, okay? Verses 2 is emphasizing that God is creator, Okay? That the Messiah, remember like I said earlier, the term Messiah and God is used interchangeably in light of Psalm 22, 23, and 24, the contextual flow. So in verses 2 it says, For He has founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. Again, two lines, similar synonymous line to make the point, drive the point home, okay? The word for there is giving the reason for verse 1. Remember verse 1, everything belongs to who? God, because He's the God that reigns over the world. Why is that? Now verses 2 gives a reason. And the reason why is in the first line, 
it shows that God as creator is taught in the first line, okay? When he says, he founded upon the seas, okay? The Hebrew verb for, um, uh, for founded is actually past tense. I think it's referring to the fact that God's special creation one time, okay? That he has built all of this. Thus the land is set upon the sea. Now, isn't that pretty accurate, right? You kind of look at the picture of the globe today. The land is surrounded by what? The continents are surrounded all by water, okay? Uh, all surrounded by water, okay? And of course, the land is higher than what? Sea level, the continent, okay? So this verse is pretty insightful that God solves it even before humans fully understand how the physical world would operate. It says here that he is founded upon the seas, referring to the land, okay? Uh, then the second line says, also teaches God as creator. Again, if it's repeating twice, that's for emphasis. And we must not miss the fact that God is creator, okay? Because he's creator, that means he has a right over what? The world, okay? It says this, for he has founded upon this, uh, or, correction, and established it upon the rivers. Now, then the verb for creation here in the second line is different. Is the word, verb established. And actually, in the Hebrew tense, is actually referring to God's ongoing work, okay? Now, the last few days, or last few weeks, how's the weather been like? How would you describe the weather the last few weeks? Cold. Cold, okay. When you look at the mountains, how cold is it when you look at the mountains? Snow caps. Yeah, it snows, okay. And then when it snows, I can't wait to, I kind of want to go to, uh, today when I was walking, I was thinking, I really want to go to, what's that place called? Um, Big, uh, Big Bear? Uh, the local Eden Canyon. Uh, Eden Canyon, Eden Canyon, right? I can't wait to. I just want to see the flow of the what, the streams, because the water is probably really, really nice right now. Okay, I can't wait till spring. Hopefully this year, the waterfall at the part of Eden Canyon is going to be really nice. I hope we could do that with our church sometimes. Okay, and eventually, maybe with our girls. But we'll see. But then you guys really have to pay attention with rocks. Okay. So I'm looking forward to that, right? And I think Jin is excited also as well. Yeah. Okay. So all that is to say that sometimes streams are made. Streams are made, come and go, okay? And here, when it says here, when it says here in verses, uh, verses, uh, when it says here in verses uh, 2, the second line, when it, the verb says established, that's, uh, the verb tense is about ongoing creation, okay? Mm-hmm. That God is continuing, at one time He made everything, the water on land, the world exists, right? There's continents. But then also, continuously, is he still involved with his creation? Yes. Yes. He's forming streams here and there, okay? So the world, in verse 1 and 2, to summarize, teaches that the world belongs to God. And God establishes stability. Are two ways of how God reigns over the world, okay? Like I said earlier, while the passage here, all the verbs, the subject of the verbs are all God, or Yahweh, as I mentioned. In our English, it says Lord. Uh, other verses also teach that the Messiah is God creator too. Right? Mm-hmm. Could you guys think of any verses where it teaches the Messiah is God creator? Mm-hmm. John 1, 1 through yeah, 1, sure. 3, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then and the Word was God. And then verses 3 says what? He made everything. Everything that exists was made through Him, okay? But also turn with me, put your pinky or thumb here. Turn with me also as well to Colossians one seventeen. Colossians one seventeen. I just want to emphasize here that the, the New Testament... We'll later teach Messiah's God. But where did Paul get that from? He got that from Jewish roots, okay? Uh, of course, he's going to expand upon it, but he got this, I think, from the Psalms. In the contextual flow of the Psalms. So, Colossians 1.17, when we get there, 
Uh, Colossians 117. Uh, Abigail, did you want to read that for us? Before all things, and in His, all, in Him, him all things consist. Okay, yeah. Or another way of saying it is all things hold together. Okay, um, where you see that He's before creation, and yet He's what sustaining it. Okay, kind of like what uh, Psalm twenty-four verse two says. Okay, so let's go back to turn back to Psalm twenty-four. Okay, there's more verses like that, like Hebrews one thirty-four. For the sake of time, we're going to turn back. The Messiah is going to be what. The reigning over the world because he created the whole world. So there should be some application from that, right? First, do you acknowledge that everything belongs to God? Yes. Okay. I think that changes the way we view money. If you understand or possession, if you understand everything belongs to who? To God, okay? I think for myself, the more I know that my life, everything I have, I'm a steward of, that makes the way I do things very differently, right? Right. Um, um, very differently. Now, let's just say you have a friend that parked... His nice car. Let's just say uh, he has a nice car and he says, you know what, I'm going to go on uh, overseas travel. I'm going to go to LAX, but I'm really nervous about my car. And I want to make sure that someone watched over it. Can I park in your garage? Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but if that guy parked in my garage, I would really take care, be very, very careful about mm-hmm. that nice car. Let's just say it's a Ferrari, right? Sure. Because why? You don't want any scratch because why? Is it because it's not your Right. Car belongs to someone else. Right. There's the idea of stewardship. Okay? There's the idea of stewardship. In the same way, God, if you understand everything belongs to God, that changes the way you view mm-hmm. everything. Our possession, our money, even the relations that we have. Okay? Mm-hmm. Even the job as I have. Okay? Now I know I want to be a pastor for all my life. Okay? That's why I'm seeking what? Ordination. I would like to be the pastor of TCC, what? Forever. But is that promise? No. I could drive and boom, there'll be an accident and I'm gone. Okay? I could get old or get whatever. You know, I could be let go. I could be disqualified. Lord really not. But we see all of this and we need to realize, okay? That we need to realize everything is a stewardship. And that should change and make us appreciate the things that we have mm-hmm. and the time that we have for God's common grace, okay? Second question is Have you lived your life realizing everything belongs to God? If not, how can you live your life differently with this truth? I encourage you to think about that. So let's go to point number two. So the first point is the Messiah reigns over the world. Point number two is the Messiah is what? Holy, okay? The Messiah is holy, okay? Uh, let's read verses three to six again. Is that okay? Verses three to six. Um, Julie, could you read verse three? Mr. Byrne, could you read verse four? Sure. Rebecca, read verse five. And then Nancy, read verse six. Is that okay? Uh, just up to six. Uh, I'll have you read verse seven later. Okay, Hannah? Oh, Abby. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully. Okay. Rebecca, verse 5, when you get there, okay? Blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek Him, who seek Your face. Okay, 
So here it begins with a really important question, okay? Verses 3, a very important question. Mm. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in this place, okay? Mm. Who's writing this again? The human author? David. David, okay? That holy hill, in the context of David, mm. would have been in where? Jerusalem, okay? Specifically, that holy hill is called what? Zion. Zion, okay? Zion, okay? So in verses 3, it asks us this important question. Do you see? I love how it goes from the world in verses 1 and 2, but now zooms in, right, to something smaller. Earlier is cosmic, but now it's going to be more particularly... Hey, Caleb, okay. Hey, Caleb. Uh, hey, Caleb. So we're in Psalm 24. Say it. But we are blood related. Jin is online. Yeah, well, Jin is online. Jin is online. It's just. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, uh, just to let you know, uh, Jen, he was saying, like, oh, I'm the only, uh, Kayla said, I was, I'm the only non-family uh, member related. here today. Okay. Blood, blood related. But we are blood-related by the blood yeah. of Christ. Right. Right? Okay? Uh, yeah, okay? <laughs> so, Psalm uh, 24, going back on, verses 5, it asks a very important question, right? I love how Psalm 24 begins with the whole world cosmic, but now it asks down to a, a local proximity area, right? Of God's holy hill, Okay. Looking at this here, I think the point of what it's trying to say here, the point of what it's trying to say here is this, is how could you go before God, okay? It asks, who may ascend the holy hill? The first question. This is a very important question. But then it qualified that in the second line, giving more detail, what, in what, what ways could we not ascend? Because it says, instead, of, in the second line, instead of saying the hill of the Lord, what is the synonymous term used in the second line of verse 3? His holy what? Place. Yeah. That is, how can we, as human beings, approach God's holy place? How can we approach and have a relationship with a God that is holy? This is a very important question, okay? This is a very important question because if God's place is holy because He is holy, then the question, the more deeper question is, related to this, the question that's hinting verses 3 is, how could we approach God? Who is holy. So then in verses 4, it gives us God's requirement. Now, I want to say there's good news, okay? That at least God has a way, a requirement that we can approach Him. Then, of course, that's going to come with it with bad news, okay? Let's read verses 4. Caleb, would you be able to read Psalm 24, verse 4? Clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn to deceitfully. Yeah, so in verses 4, right? Um, here states that the way to go before God requires us to be holy, okay? Um, basically, this verse is teaching us that we have to be holy to approach a holy God, okay? Now, this is what God's word says. We cannot remove this. This is what, what God's word requires, okay? If you look at verses 4, when it says he has a clean hand, the word hands refer to our outward action, okay, and deeds. And the word, of course, clean, uh, in the Hebrew, in a more, it's used in a moral sense of what? Innocence. That is, we're free from what? Wrongdoing, okay? Sure. Clean hands or dirty hands. Right? Or even today, in the English, we often say, like, a politician has dirty hands. That means what? They're outwardly, or they're corrupt. 
right. right? And the way they deal things and matters, okay? So God cares about our outward action. We must be holy. That's His requirement. But God doesn't only care about our outward action. Does God care about our inward hearts? Yes. That's the second line in verses 4. It says, Who has lifted up his... Uh, in verses uh, 4, uh, correction, first line still, second part of the first line says, And a pure what? Heart. We must have a heart that is pure. That is a heart that is also what? Holy. Okay? Now, in all of this, we might say, What does He mean by holy? Then He's going to give a, one... He's going to give some specific example in the second line of verse 4. What's the specific example? He says, Who has not lifted up his soul to what? Falsehood. Yeah. Wow, Mr. Byrne, you memorized it, okay? Uh, that's good, amen. And has not sworn deceitfully, okay? In other words, we don't what? Lie, okay? We don't lie, okay? Um, we must be very careful of lies, okay? Uh, lies, I think, is one of those sins that is very, very easy to uh, to commit. In fact, you know, sure. when you think about it, there's less, you don't have to do much action. All you have to do is open your mouth, okay? Exaggerate something or whatever else, okay? And in light of how easy it is, okay, how easy it is to do so, yet God gives an example that we must not be. But if truth be told, we are not always careful of our words. And we are all, what, morally sinful. So while there is a good news in the sense of verse 4 shows and answering the question, can we approach God? It's unlike other religions. Some religions say God is totally unapproachable because of our nature and God's nature. You can never know who God is. And that's it, okay? But here it says we can approach God. That's the good news. But the bad news is what? We need to be holy. And the bad news is what? Are we holy? We are not holy, okay? The bad news is not because of the law. The law is good. We must be holy. But the bad news is because of us. We are what? Sinners, we don't have clean hands, and we don't have impure hearts, and our tongues also as well. Notice these three bodily organs are what committed to do evil because of our sinful, moral, and spiritual uh, nature. Okay. So then, in light of this, here's the good news: if what happens if one fails uh, God's requirement? Okay, this is where I really love. Looking at the gospel, looking at the Old Testament very carefully, because if you look very carefully in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is not teaching us the way you go to heaven is by doing your own good works. Okay, we are saved by works, but not our works. Whose work is it? The work of Christ. Okay, look at verses five. Here's the good news. He says this: He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Did you guys catch the good news? Verses 5. Let me read verses 5 again. And then have your gospel what lens on and see if there's any, anything that reveals grace in verses 5. Okay, Verse 5 says this. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of His salvation. Okay, Notice what the verse says. And righteousness from the God of His salvation. Question. What is the source of righteousness in verses 5 here? Where's the source? Who is this righteousness coming from? Not coming from, from us. Yeah, not coming from us. Thank you, Mr. Bird. It's from God, okay? Mm-hmm. Did you see that? The beauty of that, okay? By the way, I think this here is actually the idea in incipient form, in like a eggshell form or, or nutshell form of the gospel, that there's a for, uh, foreign righteousness that's going to be imputed to us, okay? Being declared righteous. Righteousness from the Lord, okay? By the way, when it says, uh, or from God, and it also says the God of His, what? 
salvation. Okay? Notice the term salvation is involved. By the way, even when it earlier, the first part, some people might say, oh, is it teaching uh, works righteousness? It says, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. No, I think it's still even saying, it's not doing good these things and therefore you get it. The blessing comes from who first? From God. It is a gift, okay? So in verses 5, there's a hint and anticipation, okay? Within Psalm 24 itself. But at the same time, if you look at the surrounding Psalms next to it, we can never say it is by what? Our own works. Because what happens before Psalm 24? The Psalms 22, 23. And Psalms 22 teaches what? The Messiah will suffer for our sins. Okay? And Psalms 23 is teaching that He's our shepherd who's going to be what? Shepherding us and leading us through all the darkness and all of that. Okay? So it's all purely driven by grace. And yet within this verse, there's hints of it also as well. But whereas verses 5 indicates more of what God will do, we also have human responsibility, right? We're not hyper-Calvinists where we think, oh, God does everything, therefore there's no human responsibility that we don't have a will, right? Our, we do have a will, right? When you want to do something, it's really you. You really do exist, okay? You guys realize that? You guys really do exist, okay? You are not a robot. You really are... When you, when you decide to sin, you, you didn't make that choice. When you cho- chose God, you did make that choice. But of course, it's God's grace that compels you, that, that moves you lovingly with your full volition to love Him, okay? So verses uh, 6 gives the requirement. What is our responsibility? Is this. It requires us to trust and cling to God. Do you see this? When it talks about this is a generation of those who seek God, right? Who seeks His face. Notice how many times they say the word verb seek. Twice, right? Okay, we must turn to him, not do good things, but to turn to him first. Okay, here you see even a biblical New Testament idea in, in, in a compact form a biblical New Testament idea of repentance is what not penance, right? You guys know the difference between penance and repentance? Penance is Catholic, right? You do uh, go to mass, go to church, and you think you're doing God a big favor. Okay, you think going to church merely already earns favor of God. Whereas the Christian view is not that, is that you are already saved, but now you have the joy of being reminded again of ordinary means of grace, hearing God's word, for you to be reminded of the joy of the gospel, so you'll be able to live your life. Okay? So repentance means turning to God. Penance is turning to do good works to try to earn favor with what? With God. Okay? Repentance is 180 away from sin. Penance is 90 degrees. You turn from a different sin to another set of sin. What is that? The sin of self-righteousness. Okay? So do you see in verses 6, we must seek God. And then it says Jacob. I love Jacob. Because why? Jacob cling to who? To God. Yes? Right. Do you remember that? Yeah. So we must cling to God. That is, we must trust in God. Okay? If you're clinging to God, you trust in God. And therefore, you have faith in God. Okay? You don't just merely believe. You have faith. Does that make sense? Okay? Just like if someone were to... If we could look at a parachute... I could be on the ground and point to says, that's a parachute at work. I believe that works. But if you go on a plane, like my sister did uh, a few years ago, uh, get on a plane, what, what was it, 10,000 feet? Genie? Or 12,000 feet, whatever? Jump out of it, right? She didn't just believe it works. She had what? She clinged to that parachute, right? She trusted in that, okay? So a biblical idea of faith is more than just belief. It's trust in God, okay? So here you see, do you guys see the good news in the, the, these verses? Is it, do you guys think I'm making this up, reading into it, or do you guys think it really flows from the text? It flows from the text, okay? So it's application. Do you realize God is holy? 
you realize God is holy, okay? Never back away from pointing out to people that God is what? That God is holy, okay? That is the means of salvation, okay? Never back away from showing God. Now, we have to be gracious. We're, we're not going to be giving the law to say, I'm better than you. Somehow, give the idea that we could do things by our own works righteousness. But do you realize God is holy? This should change the way we live our day-to-day life, okay? Secondly, as application, do you marvel that even here in the Old Testament passage, we see hints of the gospel, that justification and salvation is already what God provides. Are you amazed with that? I'm amazed with these last three Psalms that we've looked at. Psalms 22, 23, 24. Because I think within it, you can make the case of what? The Messiah as one who will die for our sins, right? Psalms 22. And His impact will go to Gentiles from Psalm 22. From Psalm 23, you see the Messiah will take care of us. He's a good what? Shepherd. Shepherd, okay? And also even the Messiah's own life, that He will be what? Facing enemies and also eating and God will be eating with his own enemy which is who? what's his name? Judas right? and then Psalm 24 now shows what the Messiah as king and even as God and even the way of salvation okay by the way I think Psalm 22, 23, 24 like I said it's almost like interchangeable with the idea of God or man also I think hints at what? the idea of incarnation the God man will be the Messiah the nature of the Messiah will be fully God and yet fully what? Man. And then to add to this also as well, we see this truth that the Messiah is glorious and He's coming back. Okay? The first coming of the Messiah, He fulfilled Psalm 22. And aren't you so glad that Psalm 22 comes before Psalm 24? Aren't you so glad that Psalm 23, the Messiah as loving shepherd, is first chronologically before the Messiah as what? As a coming glorious, victorious, military king. Which now we lead to the third part, is the Messiah is glorious in verses 7 to 10, okay? Third point is what the Messiah is, third point, what is it again? The Messiah is glorious, okay? Verses 7 to 10. Let's go around again and read verses 7 to 10, okay? Hannah, oh no, Abigail, would you be able to read verse 7? And then, um... Uh, Jin, would you be able to read verse 8? Is it loud enough? You could hear? Uh, yeah. Okay, and then verses 9 would be Julie, and then 10 would be okay? Lift up your head, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in, mm. who... Uh, who is the, who is the King of Glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Hmm. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. Hmm. Who is this King of Glory? <clears throat> the Lord of Hosts. He is the King of Glory. Yeah. How many times does the word glory appear? What verses do you see the word glory in this section? Ten. All of them. Yeah, all of them. And, and nine. And yeah, eight. seven, eight, <laughs> nine, ten. Yeah. Seven? Uh, yeah, right? I mean, this is to emphasize we must never forget glory, okay? okay. By the way, you guys know in uh, Hebrew the word glory actually means weight, okay? Uh, weight. I think for us, in our culture, uh, gl- uh, weight. Uh, weight. Like, like uh, weight. Now, for us today, I think we live in a culture that's always about what? Slim, fast, that kind of thing, diet, and stuff like that. Um, but we must remember, for most of history, 
people probably uh, if you have weight around kings would have weight compared to what the average farmer citizen right and their soldiers and stuff like that because what the, we're in the age where we could have a lot of prosperity eating well right um, but then also shows what the glory of someone is their what weight with the kings in that context when it says here all these phrases says glory right now, I love what Julie asked earlier. The question is this, right? Like, what is this ancient gates? What does this all mean? I think this is actually referring to the city gate of what? Jerusalem, okay? I think that's hinted already in verses 5. Oh, no correction. Oh, verses, uh, uh, verses 4. Remember, uh, verses 3. Remember the rhetorical question? Who can ascend the hill of what? The Lord, which is what? Zion, which is in Jerusalem, okay? But in verse 7, I think what it's saying here, this is the city gates of what? Of Jerusalem, okay? The city gates of Jerusalem would have been this, uh, I think this is what it's saying here, okay? The Messiah one day will come back to where? To Jerusalem, okay? And then when it says, be lifted up, is to say, welcome the what? Messiah, okay? Gates are to keep certain people out, but it should definitely welcome what? If it's a royal city, yeah, the right people, especially the city king itself, okay? I mean, look at, and then it asks a question more than once. Who is the king of glory in verses 8? And then if you look again in verses 9, who is this king of glory? And it doesn't really answer it right away. In verses 10, it ends by saying, who is this king of glory? He says, A, the Lord of hosts. That is what? He's God, and he's the king of glory, okay? If you ever wonder why the Messiah has to be God, I think this is one of the suggestions also as well. And that's the contextual flow of Psalm 22, 23, 24. And you know what I think is so amazing? Is that in post-exile Judaism, for the Jewish faith, after they came back from the exile, if you remember, the Jews, their big date is 586, because that's when the temple got destroyed. And then they were exiled for 70 years. And then some of the Jews, very small percentage of came back to where? Israel, okay? There's a prophecy in Isaiah, that it might even be only a tenth of the original people that came back. And I think even in Isaiah reveals that they will still, when they come back, even though they're the remnants that's supposed to be quote-unquote faithful, they'll still be unfaithful. Okay, That's in Isaiah chapter 6, I think we want to say verse 13. Okay, They'll still be unfaithful with not following truly God. And yet when you see the Jews, during that time period, they would have, and this would include the time of Jesus Christ, they'll have it when they worship. They'll select certain psalms that they have to read every morning. For the pious Jew. And you know what? Every first day of the week, the Jews would read, the pious, the ones that are religious. You know what? They, every morning they'll read up with their family with Psalm. Mm. They'll read Psalm 24, okay? Mm. Psalm 24, they'll read it, okay? Um, they'll read, uh, just for contextual background, let me see. Oh, I closed it already. Um, there's a whole list that I had of uh, what it is that they read, okay? Uh, many things they read. Uh, for instance, uh, Okay, Psalm 24 is the first day of the week. The, uh, let me just give this for background. Uh, the, uh, and then on Monday, the second day of the week, they'll read Psalms 48. Okay? Uh, then Tuesday, they'll read Psalms 82. Wednesday, they'll read Psalm 94. Thursday, they'll read Psalm 81. Okay? Uh, Friday, they'll read Psalm 93 uh, for their morning worship. And uh, Sabbath, they'll read Psalm 92. Now, what's the significance of the, this psalm being read by God's providence on Sunday? Was there someone that ever went to Jerusalem and went to the city gate and people recognized he was a Messiah and he was a Messiah? Mm -hmm. What day did he come in to that city gate? 
So what is that day called? Palm Sunday. Okay? Mm. Now let me read Psalm 24 again in light of the Messiah coming. Could you imagine that morning before the Messiah came, you would have read this and say, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may came in, come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your gates, O gates, your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Okay? I think this prophecy was semi-hinted at, but I don't think it was fully fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Because when he come back, when he came on earth the first time, I think I like to call it the humble entry. Because he came on a what? Donkey. And he didn't come in a great white horse. That is his second coming. Okay? But then when you ask, who is this king of glory? You might say, verses 10 doesn't answer this. Because this who is this king of glory? It says God, Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. It's almost saying, who is the king of glory? Oh, he's the king of glory. Now, I think when he says this, he's not... Not answering the question. The answer is already answered not only in the rest of the Psalm 24, not only answer is also in the context of Psalm 23 and in Psalm 22. Who is the King of Glory that will come to the Messiah? Uh, the Messiah will come to the Jews today. Well, one day in Jerusalem will be who? The one who will die for our sins in Psalm 22, and yet will be raised, and the world will Gentiles would even turn to him. Who fulfilled that? Jesus Christ. The Messiah will be the shepherd who will come. The Messiah will be the sheep who's taken care of by God the shepherd, who God himself will prepare a table before his enemy, Judas. Who fulfilled that? Jesus Christ. That Messiah is what the world needs today. That Messiah is what the Jews even today need. Because if you've been paying attention to the news the last few weeks, have you been hearing about what's been going on for Jews in America lately? Has there been bad things happening? Yeah. Even... This Saturday, right? Do you remember there's this crazy guy, this black Hebrew Israelites? Mm. Some of you guys, I don't know, I think Caleb's been evangelized with me before. We talked to the black Hebrew Israelites. Were you there? These guys, they say that they're the true Jews, right? And they were like cussing. They were really mean with Andrew. Then they say, oh, you're a little more dark-skinned. Maybe like one of our forefathers, you know, basically put our seeds in somebody. And then therefore, you might have hope of salvation. I was like, wow, so racist, right? And all these things, okay? And all these things, right? And that person went and says, these guys are not real Jews. We are. And then what did he do with his machete? He went and started chopping people up, right? Did you guys know that in Israel, to, uh, in France today, synagogues are not protected by French police officers. They're not even protected by regular French soldiers. You know who they have in front of those areas? It's French Foreign Legion. The French best. Okay? That's almost like American churches having what? Marines. No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm kind of biased. Or, or, or army paratroopers, airborne soldiers, right? And rangers guarding that because of so many synagogues attacked. The biggest hope for the Jews today is they need to turn to who? The Messiah. Sure, they have to be practical, wise, and have guns and everything else or whatever else. But the same thing, the Messiah is what they need the most. They need to turn to their Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the King of glory? Who is the great victorious king that will save them one day from their future enemies of Iran and um, maybe Russia and all these other people? It must be who? It must be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that's our Messiah too. That same Messiah that saves the Jews by...
faith alone, through grace alone, uh, in Christ alone, is the same message for us today as Gentiles, okay? Let's close in a word of prayer.